This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On November 8, 1960, John F. Kennedy was elected as the 35th President of the United States of America. This was a tumultuous time with many changes on the horizon. The same could be said about the NFL, as this was the year the AFL started. At the time, this week's guest did not know that the city that he lived in would ultimately mold not only his football life, but also be the end of the line for JFK. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step off the DeLorean, the date is September 24th, 1960, and we're in Dallas, Texas at the Cotton Bowl. We're here to witness the first game for the newly formed Dallas Cowboys. They'd be facing the Pittsburgh Steelers in the first game of what would ultimately become a great rivalry. Now the Cowboys, they were put in Dallas really to compete with Lamar Hunt's Dallas Texans and the newly formed AFL. The fight for Dallas didn't last all that long, but it sure would leave some great stories on the table to write about, which is where this week's guest comes in. John Eisenberg. Now, John is a Baltimore-based sports writer and author, but his love for sports writing really started back in his childhood days back in Dallas, Texas, and he let that show through some of his early books. I mean, in all, he has 10 books, over 3,000 columns, and over 20 writing awards, but the coolest thing for him are some of the historic events that he was able to be a part of. In this episode, we will talk a little bit about each of his football books, with more of an emphasis on the most recent book, The League, How Five Rivals Created the NFL and Launched a Sports Empire. Speaking of this book, this is the cool part, because John has offered to send an autographed copy to one lucky winner. Now, you gotta go ahead and get in on this contest, and the way that you're gonna do that is you gotta head over to the contest page on the Sports History Network, which is sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash contest. Even if it's past the deadline, which is this Sunday night, there's a good chance that we have another contest open where whenever you're going to listen to this episode, just head over there again to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash contest. Also, while you're at it, I mean, you can go ahead and pick up John's book yourself without even having to wait for the contest. Uh, That or the other books, or even learn more about John and his website. To do so, you can go to his dedicated page on the Sports History Network, which is sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash Eisenberg. That's E-I-S-E-N-B-E-R-G. Also, while you're at it, don't forget to leave a review and subscribe for free to the show by mashing the little subscribe button your podcast player choice. That way you get the hottest, freshest out the press episodes well, each and every week. But for now, let's get into the interview with John Eisenberg. I like, to that type of stuff. I like to get him right into it. And, you know, one of the first questions I wanted to ask is, let's go back to Dallas, Texas as a kid, you and your typewriter. I mean, how did you even get into sports writing? Well, uh, I grew up in a household where uh, we there were two newspapers in Dallas and a morning paper and a late lamented afternoon paper, which I later worked for, by the way. But the uh, so we got the papers uh, and uh, my parents like sports. And I, I mean, the newspaper, this there's no Internet, very little 
not as much on TV. I mean, I'm, I'm not that old, but, uh, you know, there are, there was sort of less, uh, ways to sort of reference, uh, or to dig into the games you liked as a kid, uh, you know, when you weren't watching the games, it just wasn't the same. So newspapers was one way. And, uh, it was very exciting to me, especially the day after a football game, uh, you know, to read the newspaper and it was almost like being at the game again. So, uh, I think very early on, it just sort of, uh, was, uh, somehow, I mean, there was no indication I would ever do it, but, and I did, I, I had a typewriter and I would play imaginary games in my backyard or in the driveway and I'd come in and type up game stories, but that comes from having read the newspaper and sort of following their, uh, footsteps, the writers. So, uh, it was just sort of in my blood, I guess. You know, I think that's so cool when I first saw it on your website, the bio, because as kids, we all create imaginary games and we like, I just, I don't know why it, I always go back to remembering when I watched Space Jam and I was pretending I was Michael Jordan with my arm stretched out to throw the ball in the bucket, but I didn't go and then write a story on a typewriter <laughs> about the recounts of what happened. I, that's why I thought it was just so neat that you did that as a, as a young boy and then growing up living your dream. And like you said, what was the, the paper that you worked at for in Dallas there? Uh, the Dallas Times-Herald. Uh, I got out of college and, uh, uh, you know, I had written sports in college at the University of Pennsylvania and I applied to 100 newspapers and got 100 rejections <laughs> and then uh, finally caught on at uh, the Dallas Times-Herald, my hometown paper. And uh, next thing I knew, three months after graduation, I'm covering the Friday Night Lights there. Uh, just a tremendous job. I mean, probably the best job I ever had covering high school sports in Dallas uh, in the late seventies and early eighties. Yeah. That's something that, like you said, you apply to all of these papers across the nation, but then you find out, you know, back at home, uh, your, your career has taken a, a path of course. And, uh, let, let's talk about like, what was that transition like going from Dallas to Baltimore? Well, uh, the situation in Dallas was great. I was, uh, covering I, I rose through the ranks there and i did high school sports and i did smu i did the pony express uh craig james and eric dickerson and lance mickelhenny that whole thing uh and then i was covering the dallas mavericks basketball and all was well i just got married and uh but uh, the baltimore sun i knew some people that had gone to work there they called they recommended me and it seemed like a step up for me and of course good move because the times Herald folded a few years later but the uh, uh so it, it was great. I mean, I, I was hired into a great job in Baltimore. They just set me loose. I uh, went around the country, really around the world, writing feature stories. I did that for three years. And then I uh, got a column when I was 30 years old. So I was a columnist at the Baltimore Sun at age 30. And uh, so that, that was very hard to turn down. That meant I would be staying there a while. That was a big city paper with major league teams. And I was an opinion writer. So that was a job I kept for many years. When you say I got a column, what would that? What does that even mean? I guess uh, what it means was I was a byline writer, and uh, the in, in that day and age, I mean the the newspapers had columnists, opinion writers. It was the most esteemed position on the sports staff. Uh, you would go to a game and you wouldn't you could write whatever you wanted. You could write whatever you wanted about anything, and so uh, they uh, the sports editor gave me that job when I was thirty years old. And so that, that was really, uh, that, that meant you went to the big events, uh, you went uh, all over the place and, and you wrote what you thought about it and you made people happy, you made people sad, you made people angry. You know, it was, uh, it was a really interesting job. And so there was no way I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna, I, I was gonna keep that job for a long time. 
Yeah, like you said, you had a lot of autonomy and you're able to be a writer versus just a recounter of the games and things like that. Going back to your your younger days, do you remember right. one that, I mean, there's so many looking at your website, but one that stuck out in your mind, this was a cool human interest story? Well, um, as a as a columnist, you mean, or just anything? Uh, uh, well, one story, any human interest story, I tell you, going back to my Dallas days, the one I always remember is I discovered Spud. You remember Spud Webb, the basketball player, the little five foot seven uh, kid that uh, won the dunk contest when you're at the NBA, and uh, was this famous like little kid that uh, wound up playing pro basketball for twelve years. Well, I discovered on my high school years, I discovered him uh, playing at a little nowhere high school, and found him and wrote all the first stories about him, and uh, it turned him into a national sensation that, uh, uh, and of course he took it from there, I'd like to say, you know, wound <laughs> up in the NBA. So that was definitely one, uh, you know, there were, there were lots of them other than that. Right. Yeah. I mean, picking one of favorite, that's like picking a favorite child or something and, and that kind of thing. I mean, I was uh, just thinking you started a long time ago, like you said, the seventies, eighties before the age of the internet, how, how did it change for you writing for the paper or whatever you want to say, through that transformation into the internet you mean right yeah into the digital age i mean the whole yeah. information now kind of thing well it's it's i mean it's sort of it's profoundly changed the newspaper business needless to say and it, you know it's semi killed the newspaper business the internet has i mean my industry has uh, struggled mightily i mean there's the uh, you know my old paper the baltimore sun is a shell of what it was and and that's the case in many cities unfortunately i hate it but it's it's the case uh, but in terms of writing, for me, what's really amazing is it didn't change a whole lot because uh, by virtue of getting that column at age 30, I, I mean, I sort of was typecast as, a, at least in newspapers, as an opinion writer. And so uh, I did that for many years. It didn't really change. One column a day they wanted, you know, four a week or whatever it may be. And actually, I'm still doing that today, uh, you know, oh. all these many, many years later. Now, that's what I do for the Baltimore Ravens is uh, they want columns. They want opinion. They don't want facts. They want opinion. So the, that, that column that I got low those many years ago, uh, it's still what I do. And so the Internet hasn't changed that much. I mean, I get up in the morning and I write my opinion about something and I turn it in. So it hasn't changed that much. Being that you write for you keep bringing up opinion as far as um, writing, do you f- – do, do you deal with, okay, so do you break up like my fandom versus the writing or is it hard to do that or how does that work for you? Um, it's, it's not too hard. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, you know, grew up a Dallas Cowboy fan big time. And I, and, um, I wound up years later going to some Super Bowls where they were playing and yeah, I was pulling for them. It was something that my late father and I shared and, and, uh, so, uh, yeah, I pulled for them, but I also covered a playoff game where they got killed by, I think it was the Lions, if you can believe it or not. And, uh, <laughs> oh, very good, very the, good. The, the, the one game, people can't yeah. see this, I took my hands up, the one game that we can hold our hats on and yeah, like, killed, killed my whole life. <laughs> the Troy Aikman Cowboys, I think, and uh, killed them. And uh, so I gave them a pretty good uh, rip in there. So it's not that hard all these years later. I mean, I, I write for the Ravens website. Uh, you know, I write about the Ravens. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, I mean, they employ me. But uh, they, 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 they didn't ask me 
to be a shill. You know, they said, you, you write what, you know, we're trying to get eyeballs to the side. You have a name in this market. We want you to say what you say. And so, you know, do I want them to win? Sure. But, uh, you know, when things go wrong, you say it. So I, I've never really had a problem making that distinction. Yeah. I mean, as not anything I've ever been involved in, you know, as far as writing, I mean, this, <laughs> this podcast, everybody that listens to it, they know I'm a massive Detroit Lions fan. That's why I showed you. Oh. The, we, I think it comes up on basically every episode somehow. And oh, speaking good. of you and Baltimore, uh, everybody <laughs> else though knows that uh, Ray Lewis is okay. First of all, Baltimore is my favorite non-Detroit Lions team. And it, all was because of Ray Lewis. My high school days, I grew up being a linebacker. And so oh, yeah. Ray Lewis is my non-favorite ball, or Lions player of all time. Oh, good, good, <laughs> and, good. And speaking of other you know, dreams and things like that, I mean, I saw that dream to be an author, which you've been a multiple author of many sports. And uh, mostly this talks about football on this podcast. So I'd like to talk a little bit about your, your NFL books there. And the first, uh, I saw four of them. The one I don't know the the timeline of them, but the growing up with the Cowboys in the sixties. I mean, how did that, how did, how did it even shape the rest of your life growing up with the Cowboys? Well, it shaped it a lot. I mean, that, that book was very interesting. I wrote it in 1997, I believe <clears throat> it came out. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I had just turned 40 years old and to think that, the stuff in your life was some was worthy of history was uh, really a really a barrier I had to get over. And I wasn't sure that it was. I mean, the stuff that I'd seen as a kid in Dallas watching the Cowboys before they were America's team, for sure, when they were kind of a dirty little, not dirty, but, you know, they were a little scruffy little expansion team that grew into something playing at the Cotton Bowl. Was that worthy of a, of of you know a, a book you know sort of a literary endeavor? And I just decided it was. Found a good editor at Simon Schuster and just went for it. And I I had read a lot of books. I'd read The Boys of Summer, where uh, I'm not comparing my book to his, Roger Kahn's, but you know he he wrote about being a kid in Brooklyn and 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 going back and seeing these old players and and that's what I thought I would do. I'd been a journalist then for a while. I was going to go and find Don Perkins and Bob Lilly and, and, and these guys and talk to them years later. And it, it kind of struck me that I had grown up uh, around the same time as the team did and the city of Dallas. Of course, I experienced the Kennedy assassination. I, I lived there and, uh, you know, some very poignant uh, uh, years in our country's history, you know, things happening in Dallas. So I thought there was a lot to write about, actually, as it came down. And, you know, the, the, the race uh, what the Cowboys, a lot of those African-American players went through in Dallas in the 1960s was something I was unaware of. It wasn't in the newspapers. So uh, there's just a lot to chew on. And so I, uh, you know, put it all into a book, uh, ultimately, was very happy with that one. You know, I wrote about my family and, uh, you know, dedicated to my parents and it just came together well. I'm, you know, to this day, I still hear from a lot of people about that book. Uh, probably more than just about any of them because it was so personal. Yeah, it's a connection to the book that you, I mean, that you can't really get in any of the other books. I mean, close enough, I suppose, is the next one I want to talk about, the 10 Gallon War. Um, so you would have been old enough to really kind of remember that, right? You the During his time or no? Not really. Uh, uh, the, what I, That's a book about uh, uh, the three years of the AFL-NFL war when there were Suddenly, two teams, pro teams in Dallas, the Cowboys and the, the Texans, who became the Chiefs in 63. And so I was really a little kid. I was four, five, and six years old. Oh, okay. And no, a little too young. 
But I just approached it again as a journalist. You know, I'd go back and I knew where to go and I knew the story because, uh, I mean, I knew about I studied the history and I, I knew about the Dallas Texans. And I did bring some personal stuff to that one just because and um, my grandfather, who bought all the tickets, he, he we had a news blackout. You know, we were we, he went with the Cowboys because the Texans were the up and coming team in the AFL and the Cowboys were in the established NFL and he was an establishment man. So uh, it was personal in that sense. So but I, I brought that to it personally, but mainly it was just a story to tell journalistically. Yeah. I mean, speaking of that, even maybe as you became older and you were able to remember, were there the whole, I remember when there were two teams here and then you have like two different sides, almost like, I don't know, two different colleges of the same state arguing against each other. Very much so. And come to find out that a cousin in my family was a closet Texans fan. He went, uh, you know, uh, we, di we didn't, I didn't even know it. My cousin Jack would go off to these Texan games. It was a sort of, a, a, you know, not what the rest of the family was doing, but they were younger, they were hipper. And uh, it was, it was very definitely two different. I went and found some Texan fans and it was a whole side of it that I didn't know. Uh, so the Texan, Dallas Texans, I mean, Lamar Hunt, you know, his name's on the AFC trophy and just, an, and I actually covered him when I went to work at the newspaper in Dallas uh, for soccer, I covered his soccer team and his phone number was listed and I used to interview him. Just a great guy, tremendous guy and an amazing sportsman. And so, uh, you know, he was, uh, way, way ahead of his time, needless to say. And he brought the NFL to its knees with that AFL that started, and uh, it's just uh, his, his story alone is just just incredible. Um, speaking of incredible stories, I mean, another individual and around that same time frame, the other book that you wrote before we get into the league, Vince Lombardi, like what chose? Why did you choose that story for your next book? The league? Uh, uh, you mean uh, the I'm sorry, the, the Vince Lombardi that, book. That, that first season. Yes. Uh, well, that is actually one. Uh, I had written, uh, four or five books at that point. I was looking for a subject and actually I, and I have an agent in New York and the agent called me and he was reading the, this is the only time this has happened in all these years. And he said, um, he was reading the wall street journal and, uh, he was reading an article, uh, that about how Bill Parcells was turning around the Cowboys and buried in that article. 20th paragraph was, uh, uh, he said, you know, it, this is right there with some of the great turnarounds, including what Vince Lombardi did in Green Bay. And so, of course, David, you know, Marinus had, had already written an unbelievable biography of Lombardi. Uh, you know, never, no one, no one should ever try to do another biography of Lombardi after David's, which is, you know, so good. But uh, uh, my, my agent said to me, why don't you just write about that first season? You know, he didn't win. Nobody's written about it. And what happened there when he shows up, this New Yorker and Green Bay, and it was a good idea. And so uh, that's what I did. I went and I owned David's uh, biography. I went and checked it out. And there wasn't that much on that 1959 season. I said, I think there's territory there for me to explore. So sure enough, that's what I did. I wrote about how Lombardi, just sort of the, the, the gears that were in motion for him to get to Green Bay and then what, just what he did in the first season, because it's like a prequel to the dynasty. And everything that uh, happened in Green Bay in the 60s was set up by that first year uh, that Lombardi shows up. And when I really dug into it, I couldn't believe it because 
all those Hall of Famers were already on the team practically. I mean, you know, Bart Starr, Jim Taylor, Paul Horning, just, uh, you know, right down the line. I mean, he made some additions, but, and they were all, <laughs> I mean, they weren't playing or they were in a different position. And, and it was a disaster uh, that beforehand. And, and so to me, it became an incredible, I've spoken to business groups who've read that book because it is the story of the power of one. You know, what a strong leader individual with foresight. Uh, how did he do that? Take the same group of guys who were the worst team in the NFL and turn them into champions. Uh, you know, I have found that business groups have had a lot of resonance with, with that. And, you know, he based it on fundamentals and he used his personnel. He was great at finding where people should be playing. And uh, to me, it was a fascinating story. And so uh, they, they finished seven wins, five losses, but they won their last four games. And you could just see it. You could just see it uh, coming together. And so I, I thoroughly enjoyed that story. It was a great idea by my, by my agent. Not, it was not my idea. I'm a cowboy fan. You know, I was, you know, the ice bowl broke my heart. Uh, you know, so, uh, it was, uh, I was really kind of going over to the other side, but, uh, uh, commerce, uh, got the better of me. Well, I mean, it's the same thing as being a Lions fan and, you know, I've, I've brought up Packers many times, especially at the very beginning of the league. A lot of my episodes were solo, and of course, you're talking George Halas, you're talking Curly Lambeau, and you talk all these other guys in there. I'm like, man, as a Lions fan, this kind of sucks, but yeah. it is what it is. They help build the oh. league, and you know, we talk about your next book, The Men Who Built the League. Actually, took it to the next level, we'll call it. Uh, let's talk about that book, The Main Show, The League. What the five men? Who are the five men? Well, the five men, uh, you know, I was approached by an editor at Basic Books that uh, in New York that said, you know, I want to write a a story on uh, early days of pro football. And I said, okay. Uh, and he said, great. What's the story? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I said, well, okay, let me think about that. And of course, you know, there've been biographies written about a lot of Bronco Nagurski and a lot of these early football players. Uh, and there've been, you know, leatherheads have been movies, you know, not very good movies, but so the, the stories had been told, but to me, as I examined it, the story, the most interesting story to me was when you look at the early days of the NFL, it is bears no resemblance to what it is today. Z zero. It is. It was close to a failing enterprise. Uh, it started in 1920. Uh, there was no money on the table, no fans, no tradition. The games were boring. It was mostly just punting and uh, handing off. And there was, it looked like pro football had no future. It was, it was the far down the pecking order of American sports. So uh, how did we get from there to where we are now, where it is so preeminent and, you know, $15 billion a year in annual revenues and just a, a amazing cultural sort of touchstone in America. Uh, and I zeroed in on, uh, and, you know, how do we get through those tough years? And I zeroed in on five sort of founding fathers who were, they weren't all there at the very beginning. George Hallis of the Bears was the only one. But, uh, you know, the others, uh, they, by the time in the early 30s, they were all there together. And they're the ones that carried the NFL through these early years, very tough years. And uh, the others are Tim Mara, who started the New York Giants, 1925 for $500 or $2,500, depending on which version of history you believe. Uh, Burt Bell, who started the Philadelphia Eagles in 1933. And, uh, you know, borrowed his wife's money to do it. Wound, and then wound up being commissioner of the NFL, an incredibly important figure. 
you know, as it turned out, George Preston Marshall, who started the Redskins uh, when they were the Boston Redskins in 1932, moved into Washington. And uh, in some ways, the first real football hysteria was the Redskins when they moved to Washington. And he's a fascinating figure. Uh, he really livened up the NFL, uh, did very important things to get it going. And he's also probably the greatest racist that the league has ever seen. And uh, so uh, every day as I was writing this book, I got up and said, thank you that I had George Preston Marshall as a character because he's fascinating. Some good, some highs, some lows. Great guy to write about. Uh, and the last one was Art Rooney, who started the Pittsburgh Steelers uh, in 1933 and owned them until the day died in the late 80s. And uh, was in many ways the conscience of the NFL for many, many years, sort of uh, a glue. The Steelers were terrible for years. Nobody believes that now, but they were. But he was a very important figure in, in league, uh, the sort of the machinations of the league. So how did these five guys work together? They were rivals on the field. They were partners in football in the business of pro football. How did they work together? to survive the early years and set the NFL up to succeed. And that's really what the book's about. Great, Scott. I'm going to mash this pause button real quick and tell you about a new segment where I'm going to promote another sports history podcast on the Sports History Network, which is the headquarters for your favorite sports yesteryear. This week, we get to hear from Joe Zagorski from Pigskin Past. Hi, folks. Are you curious about some of the unique players, teams, games, and events of pro football's past? If you are, please check out my bi-weekly podcast, The Pigskin Past. I'm Joe Zagorski, a member of the Pro Football Writers of America and the Pro Football Researchers Association. I've written three books about pro football history, and I'm currently writing my fourth. Now, my era of expertise is the 1970s in the NFL. Heck, I even have a Facebook page by that title. And my very first book also has the same title, The NFL in the 1970s. But every now and then I check out a different era, so I might surprise you. Anyway, if you like pro football history, please check out my bi-weekly segment here called The Pigskin Pass when you get a chance. I think you'll enjoy it. All right, let's take another hit of that 1.21 gigawatts and get back into this thing. Yeah, taking it as approach to, like you said, like a business aspect and how do we grow this thing? I mean, what kind of... Any kind of interviews, talking to people when you were building the book that stick out to mind to you? Yeah, uh, this one was more based on uh, on sort of uh, research. Of course, obviously, the five central figures had passed away, but their kids are around and a lot of them are, are still or their grandkids uh, still running the NFL. Uh, the Bears uh, was it was just unbelievable. Uh, George Hallis's uh, uh, daughter, Virginia McCaskey. Uh, owns the Chicago Bears. Uh, still, she's 90. I, when I interviewed her, she was, I think, 93. She's now 96 or 97 years old, of course, and worth, you know, $3 billion or whatever it is, whether, whatever the Bears are worth, which is a lot. And so she's this, you know, wonderful little, you know, has spent her life in Chicago and had just seen everything, knew everything. And so that was a great interview. She had a lot to say about the early days. She had been there and seen like they, there was a famous championship game that was played in the gym, basically indoors in Chicago, 1932. She was at the game. So uh, we, don't, we don't talk about 1932 championship. Oh, sorry. That's right. right. Sorry yeah. about that. The <laughs> go down. 
but the uh it was a bad call too they, they yeah really did get just screwed. like we then we big megatron and the catch rule we, we like right. i said we, we don't talk about that around here right <laughs> same deal but uh so she was there for that she was an incredible interview and what was really great was uh you know i i later on i went on and i interviewed other people and i would people would ask me about the book as i was writing it and i would say you know i interviewed virginia mccaskey and it was not easily done uh, and, uh, I sort of went through league channels and the bear said, yes. And, um, people said to me, that's incredible that you interviewed her. That's like, that's like interviewing George Washington's daughter or something like that. And it was really kind of true. I mean, George Hallis's daughter, uh, uh, was, uh, an amazing interview and I'm very, uh, I have it on tape was a, was a wonderful thing. She, I was very grateful to her. Yeah. That's super cool. That someone that, like you said, has been there almost the entirety of the league and being able to remember so many, it's just so many things that have changed throughout then. And I wrote down something. I typically ask people like, give me your Mount Rushmore, but because you have five, you're kind of cheating. So we'll call it your fat, <laughs> your five, five or something like that. Okay. But of your fab five, if you could only pick one business decision that that group made together, that catapulted the league into what it is today, what would you say it is? It's the draft. Uh, the draft fundamentally changed the NFL it, and something had to happen. Uh, as I studied this history in the early thirties, the mid, by the mid thirties, the, the NFL was still struggling. There were, I think there were, if you look at the, there's 32 or 33, there's eight teams in the league. Uh, there's three in the New York area, two in Chicago. And then there's green Bay, Portsmouth. And I'm, I'm blanking on who the other one is, but I mean, there was, there was a very small footprint. The pro football was barely making it. The Bears were having some success in Chicago. The Giants were drawing fans in New York. It was going okay in some places, but it wasn't gonna. The rich were just getting richer. They did. They were winning. They were dominating. And so Burt Bell, who had started the Eagles, it was and there was no system for disseminating college talent. I mean, it's just everybody bid on. Everybody could bid on every player. And so the ones that had money were getting the good players. And so it was just getting worse and worse, the disparity between the haves and the have-nots. Um, and so Burt Bell had started the Eagles, uh, uh, you know, after that thin footprint I was telling you about. And he was couldn't get any players and he was getting killed uh, week after week on Sundays. And he stood up at the league meeting. He says, gentlemen, this I'm going to be out of business here. And as a matter of fact, we all may be out of business here soon if we can't. We gotta, we gotta figure something out here. And so he came up with the idea of the worst team gets the first pick, and you know the thing that we're familiar with now. You do it in verse order of finish, and uh, what was a, and, and really the key moment I think in league history was uh, Tim Mara and George Hallis, who owned the the Bears and the Giants, who were crushing everybody uh, in that meeting, looked at each other and said, "You know, you're right." You're right. And, and they, they voted for it and they knew that their days of dominance would end eventually. This would level the playing field. And it took a long time. It took like a decade uh, for the, the playing field really to level, for the draft to work. Uh, there were other things involved, but that was the moment. Uh, and it all boils down to uh, Burt Bell failed to sign a fullback for Minnesota named Stanley Koska who is long forgotten, but when he couldn't get that kid uh, and the, the kid played him off of every other team and he got really mad and he came up with this idea for the draft. That's, that's the one thing I think that really put the, the NFL in the right direction. 
you mentioned that George Hallis and Tim are, they voted. Is there a record of, did anybody vote against it? Um, I, I don't think so. And, Pretty much and, unanimous. And I think so. And, and you can look it up. I can't remember. Uh, one of the real research tools for me for that book, uh, uh, the league is a, in Canton, Ohio, there is a loose leaf binder that's probably eight inches thick. And it has the official minutes of every league meeting ever going back to 1920. You can read what people said, the official minutes of everything, what people said. It's unbelievable. And that book never leaves the library at, uh, they have a nice library in Canton. And, uh, I, I spent several weeks there and you, you know, you could hear their voices as you read the minutes from these meetings. It's just fantastic. It was, uh, a great thing. And so you can look, I can't remember what the vote there was, but they, they, they knew the draft. You know what, if George Hallis, and, and this is practically till the day he died, if George Hallis said, we're doing this, everybody else said, okay, great. I mean, he, he ran the NFL. He was the NFL for so long. And so if he said, we got to do this, everybody else said, oh, well, okay. I'm kind of jumping myself here because I always ask the question near the end, but if you could, if you go talk to George Hallis and any era, like what would you ask him about? Like as, as a, as a reporter and you're covering a game or whatever, (laughs) just a, just a, your opinion columnist that you have, go talk to George Hallis and have a quick interview. Like what would you ask him about? It's such a great question because he come the, the the relationship between the press and the and the and the players and the coaches was very different. I mean, his brother was an official, and he would bring his brother in to officiate like championship games, <laughs> and he would bring reporters in as officials, so and pay them, and they got good coverage and good calls. So he definitely would have would not have liked me asking some sort of question like, why can't you throw better, George? Or, you know, what's wrong with your defense? The stories that have become normal in, in today's media. So whatever question I would have wanted to ask him, uh, I probably wouldn't have gotten it out. I, I, I think he would have snapped at me and said, I, you know, I would have. I mean, there were many, many questions to ask him, uh, you know, and a lot of it had to do with sort of the evolution of the game, you know. Uh, he he was tremendous on that, but I, you know, uh, uh, you know, under the radar things that he did, like he really cleaned up the officiating in the in the late '30s. The officiating in the NFL was a disaster. It was, the high schools were better, and so he's the one that brought in sort of professionalized it, and uh, you know, once he couldn't use his brother anymore, and uh, put in some best practices, and. Uh, you know, he did, he did stuff like that. So he, he knew that it had to happen. So uh, a good question along the lines would have been, you know, when, when are you going to clean that up? That every game ends with a controversy and the fans rioting and the players and the officials being escorted from the field, which it happened a lot. There were a lot of controversies. When are you going to, what are you going to do about this? Because it, it was a real problem there in the late thirties and the early forties. But he addressed it. So, mm-hmm. but uh, there, there certainly would have been a time to ask him that. <laughs> so you're saying that the way he is, maybe he'd give you that Papa Bear snarl, and he oh, just <laughs> no question about it. He 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 didn't he didn't like that. You know, he he didn't like those tough questions. So he's a pretty hilarious figure. Do they like? I mean, there's been many books on him. Do you know if there's been a movie ever about his life? I don't. I've not seen a movie. I have not. Uh, so I'm not sure there has been, uh, his autobiography, Hallis by Hallis is really good. I used it as a source and, uh, I mean, it's got a few, uh, 
you know, I think exaggerations and, and a few things, which is what happens. But it, it was a really – his voice came through, I'll put it that way. Uh, the sports writer that wrote it with him did a really good job. That's kind of like the uh, victors always tell the stories down the road and you get to see. <laughs> so whoever's yeah. writing the book gets to tell the story. Yeah. Well, and, and with him, I mean, it is the history of pro football. His And uh, I stumbled across a, 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 an appearance he had made near the end of his life on Capitol Hill, uh, where uh, it was a period of time. I think Al Davis was moving the Raiders and there there were having some issues with uh, – you know, what, what to do with, uh, with, you know, antitrust, uh, situation and what with all sports and, uh, a, a committee meeting was meeting on Capitol Hill and, uh, the NFL to sort of preserve what they could brought in George Hallis. And he gave this speech, which basically outlined the history of pro football. It's incredible. And he was the guy to do it. He was, they were six, de- six decades in at that point and he'd seen it all. So, uh, uh, it, you know, th- there could be a movie easily. Oh yeah, I mean, I would, I would think that it'd be one of those things where it's almost like you have to, you have to have like a, a TV series where it goes on multiple, yeah. like a mini series, like HBO type thing. And speaking yeah. of stories and favorite stories or what have you, uh, what's the story that you're like, you know, I really want to write this, but I haven't been able to for whatever reason regarding the NFL. Uh, the 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 story that I've thought about writing a lot. Um, well, there's a couple of them. Uh, uh, I've long had in my holster. I mean, I, you know, I've lived in Baltimore for 36 years and, and what, but I am a Texan and, uh, I would love to write a biography of Don Meredith. Uh, I think it's a fascinating figure. Um, you know, I wrote about him a little bit. He didn't participate in, um, Cotton Bowl Days, my book. He didn't want to, uh, but, uh, you know, he did call me when it was over because I, I, I sketched him in that. He did call me when it was over and, and it's like the greatest compliment I've ever gotten in my life. He, he, he called me one night, my wife and I were eating Chinese food and he calls and he says, you know, I read your book and you got it right. And I was like, I was like brought to my knees practically by that, by him. And so he was such a, if you were in Dallas in the sixties, he was such a, a fascinating and unique and original figure. And then he goes on to start Monday night football and, uh, was just an incredible national figure sort of in television and pro football. And then, uh, disappears from the face of the earth, decides he just chucks it all and spends his last 20 years by himself pretty much while he's married in Santa Fe, New Mexico. It's like, what a, what a life this guy had. And I'm just fascinated by him. I would love to write it someday. So we'll, we'll see if I get to that one. Uh, uh, yeah. Keep that on the horizon and let us know when that one kind of comes okay. forward. <laughs> yeah, that, that one definitely is is on my wish list. Okay, so speaking of wish list, and this is something, the question that I asked everybody, I'm giving you the virtual keys to my DeLorean right now, all right? Okay, all right. You're getting that baby up to 88 miles an hour. You go back and point any point in NFL history and you can relive a moment, ask a question, maybe because you, you, know, you spent your days reporting. Let's report on one story. What is it going to be? Oh man. Uh, well, uh, I think it would be the, uh, championship game. If, if I could have been at one game, I would like to have been at that, uh, Giants Colts overtime game in 1958, the greatest game ever played. So-called, 
Uh, it goes into overtime. It's the last chapter. Uh, it's the last scene in my book, The League, because 40 million people are watching it on TV. And the, 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 the business of surviving and is over. The business of survive, the NFL, which was never, it wasn't for, believe it or not, not clear for many years whether it would survive. That was over because 40 million people were watching that game. And it was just such an important game in so many ways. It's really the day the light came on for America, I think, for professional football. And it's modern football, too. It's the football that we would come to know because there was so much running and sort of handing off. And, and, and uh, the game itself was evolving. It was really not very interesting for a long time. And then they started to throw the ball. They didn't know really how to throw the ball. I mean, if you go back and look at the statistics, a lot of the passing numbers, they're horrendous. They are You couldn't believe really be fired today, you know, if you're completing 40% of your passes or 35 or whatever. But by 1958, you have Johnny Unitas, uh, you know, just zinging it all over the field to people. And, you know, these these two minute marches to tie the game and then win the game. So much drama and an amazing football game. I, I would like to be there. I would love to have covered it. And uh, I mean, the coordinators who lost the game for the Giants were Vince Lombardi and Tom Landry. All right. Vince <laughs> Lombardi was running the offense. Tom Landry's running the defense. They lost. So uh, what a game. Uh, and so I, I would love to have covered that game and uh, explore, talk to Johnny Unitas and say, you know, how in the world did you do that? Yeah, it's just just to think about how many Hall of Famers are on that field and the coaches, like you said, like don't even realize the coordinators that are involved, even all just so many things. Like when you talk about historical perspective and then just like you said, the light bulb comes on in America. I, in my days... Like until I started this podcast, I couldn't even fathom that football wasn't like the number one sport just because it's like, how do I, I can't computate that inside of my brain. Cause for me it's football and then off season football and the training yeah. and then maybe baseball down there somewhere. <laughs> so. Well, baseball was so preeminent and especially in New York where that game was played. I mean, the Yankees, uh, you know, the, you know, Brooklyn, you know, the Dodgers, uh, at that point, the Giants baseball was everything for decades and football had no chance, had no chance for many years. And so they really played a long game and TV coming in had a lot to do with it. And it's a fascinating story how pro football finally took off. But, yeah, uh, uh, there, there it was a long period of time where it was. I mean, you really go back at, in the league when I was reading uh, some of the clips, go back and read the newspapers. I mean, it was like pro wrestling. You know, people thought and and the players were looked down upon. It was like, well, if you're going to go play pro football, I mean, you, I mean what's wrong with you? Number one, uh, you must not have anything else to do. Uh, did you go to college? And, and, you know, I mean, it, they were looked down upon. They really were. They had to sort of escape that shadow before the sport could take off. Yeah, and boy, did that sport take off. And again, we talk about it in the beginning. We, we have that book, The League, and I'm going to leave that link in the show notes. And everybody, we have that contest that will be coming out. And are there any last words of wisdom for the fans of the show that you want to give them? Uh, no, I mean, I uh, other than, you know, uh, uh, I mean, I, I, I come from an interesting perspective because I'm knee-deep in the modern NFL. Uh, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm around the Baltimore Ravens and Lamar Jackson and run pass option plays 
and, you know, just wherever we're going with, with this offense they're running and, you know, playing Patrick Mahomes on Monday Night Football and fascinating stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think I love the history. I mean, I also, the books that I've written are almost all history. And uh, to me, that, it adds to the enjoyment of the game to see where we were, what happened, context, what sort of context is there. And so that's what I've always tried to do with my books is provide context for what's happening today. And let just the, 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 I find that stories to be so rich, so interesting. And uh, the, the sport has changed a lot. Uh, and, you know, by virtue of writing the league, I really sort of learned I, I could see the 100 year continuum. And uh, I'm glad that I can see that, you know, that I can see where it started, what it went through and where it is today. So uh, but, uh, you know, you can't really do that unless you dig into the past a little bit. And, and I, I, you know, I, for one, uh, maybe I'm a dinosaur or whatever, but I, I love the history. You know, I love, you know, podcasts like yours. Amen. Because, uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's really what what gives you context to what's going on today. And in some respects, uh, you know, I, I do feel the old football uh, was, you know, in some regards better. And uh, I mean, the football itself may not have been better, but, uh, uh, you know, the sport, the game. I mean, it was uh, these, these developmental years, the 60s, amazing times. And. Uh, you know, I don't think you can ever see more pure football than you will see some of those games uh, in the 60s with Lombardi's Packers against, you know, your Lions. You know, we had some really good teams and um, uh, where people are just cracking each other. It's great stuff. So uh, I would always uh, encourage everybody to, you know, check out the past a little bit. You'd be you'd be pleased with what you find. There you go. Dive a little into some football history. Hmm. <laughs> I wonder where you could do that. But seriously, I want to thank John for joining the show and sharing the great stories with us. And he's also graciously given us the opportunity, well, given you the opportunity, to win an autographed, signed copy of his book, The League. Now, to sign up for your chances to win the book, you can head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash contest. And while you're on the website, take John's advice. Dive into some sports history. I mean, we have multiple podcasts up there and other articles for you beyond even what's on the Football History Do podcast. Like I said at the beginning, we are working to become the headquarters for your favorite sports history year. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads.